only book club podcast that records on an actively receding ice sheet sometime in the near future. Amanda, probably 20 to 30 years from now, maybe tomorrow even, we uh, should pack it up and move. We need to start looking at real estate as soon as possible. Yeah, we need to move inland and and higher elevation at some point. (laughs) That's right. Get to northern Canada, maybe. That'll be one of the last (laughs) remaining places to kind of fend for survival, I suppose. We could put it that way. Or go to the Netherlands and and get one of those floating houses. That's true. They're just embracing it, aren't they? They're just totally yeah. prepared for the for the wet future. <laughs> if you have no idea why we're speculating about climate doom, that is because you have found us in a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes. We are, as I mentioned, the Lately Literary Podcast. Today we'll be discussing a book called Field Notes from a Catastrophe by Elizabeth Colbert. And it is Colbert. I looked it up today before starting. <laughs> didn't nice. want to didn't want to leave that a mystery for you know, the episode we're actually covering the text. We do have social media accounts, so we would kindly ask you to follow us. We also post updates and some art on the Instagram account and the Facebook account. Those are both just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. So again, follow and talk to us there. We always ask for rates and recommendations. Wherever you found this podcast would be a great place to do it. We're up on Spotify and iTunes and Google and all the big services and everything. So wherever you located this, unless it's on our website, in which case we don't have a platform for that. So just enjoy it on the website and that's perfectly fine by us. As I mentioned, this is a book club episode, which means we'll be diving deep and analyzing this work of investigative journalism literature. It is, again, a book called Field Notes from a Catastrophe by Elizabeth Colbert. Did I say it wrong already? (laughs) I just looked it up. (laughs) Colbert. There we go. Colbert. Like Colbert. Colbert. Uh, Colbert. (laughs) And we split our book clubs in half, so we'll be posting this episode on a Friday. The next episode and the follow-up to part two will be next Friday. Today we will be covering, just for clarification, chapters one through seven, and the chapters in this book are clearly labeled, so we have read one through seven. That's what we'll be discussing, and that is up for discussion and analysis today. I believe I chose this book, Amanda, so do you want to set up how you uh, prompted me to do so? Yeah, the prompt that I uh, came up with for you is a book that explores some kind of corruption that you would like to see rooted out. Yeah, and is what and in what is quickly becoming a classic move for me, I completely <laughs> reinterpreted the way that was phrased or worded and chose a book that I think skirts around the edges of the prompt but still kind of fulfills it. I don't think that climate change is a corruption, though I, you could argue that it's very literally literally a corruption of the earth or the climate or something. But it's mm-hmm. it's just, I think, the defining problem of the next you know forever (laughs) hundred years or however long humanity lasts after that so i i don't know i the corruption would be kind of the inability to deal with it or the lack of action over it or some version of that i'm thankful to say that even in this half of the book she has addressed in ways sort of political solutions or policy things and in the man section she's kind of started to discuss it so i do think it was a fair pick for the prompt i'm not sure if you agree I think so. Um, And I know she mentioned specifically the Bush administration. Yeah. um, Yeah. And and they're like uh, non-working, their unwillingness to really work with the idea of climate change and stuff. Um, So I think that corruption in that sense, like the, the corruption stemming from political inactivity yeah, really fit with this. Yeah, yeah, and I the industrialization aspect isn't. She definitely addresses it. Of course, you have to in terms of where these where where this issue comes from and the origins, science of it, and everything. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would call that a corruption. But it's in terms of inactivity or countries not taking action or not making plans, all that stuff. That I think could easily fall under the kind of the wording of the prompt. Yeah. It should also be noted that this is a bit of an older text on climate change. I think it was even published before 2008, so before Obama's first term. But she has updated it. And I know this book has been, when it's been republished and updated, there are new, I think, new sections or new parts that are that have more current research. So in 2021, as we record this, it, new things have been learned about climate change, though not, not profoundly new things. At least I'm not finding any of the revelations or science to be outdated or to feel outdated or anything so i think it's a pretty relevant account it's just yeah this was published in a different political era for sure so 
that's why I chose it. I, again, I just thought it was the most pressing, immediate issue I could think of. If you asked me what is a problem of what is a number one problem for humanity, I think it has to be top of mind, or it is for me. So this is just what I thought of first. And to be honest, for as much as I've read about the issue, and even I took a class in college that was dedicated entirely to this issue, I have never really read a book about it. Like a ton of articles, but never a book. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple. I've, I've, re- um, I've read a part of a book called The Uninhabitable Earth, which is the, that's, a, that's bleak. That's like purposefully like all, it's basically a worst case scenario book to be like, here the, here's all the worst case scenarios. Here's what they would actually look like and kind of spread out the ramifications and show all the different, you know, interactions of the worst case stuff. And so that's, and I've read excerpts of that and parts of that, but overall I've never like finished a book front to back on this issue. I'm not sure if you have. No, but I feel like, um, some of the, uh, apocalyptic literature that I've read is, is kind of like exploring the idea of like, you know, (laughs) what if we don't address what we're doing um, to the earth? Yeah. So. No, certainly in fiction, I, I've definitely read plenty of water world esque future dystopias or something. Yeah. The flooding, the world that will flood more often, the world that will have a greater ocean, all that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it is, as always, Amanda, spiraling towards water world future. It was like Kevin Costner, <laughs> whoever that was. He yes, it, all it was on. Kevin Costner. Yeah. We're headed for gill life. It's time for humans to evolve rapidly. And it's time for gill life, so I embrace Mm -hmm. it. All right, let's dive in. Without further ado, let's start this thing. We will again be analyzing and dissecting chapters one through seven. So at this point, if you're spoiler reverse, this is also, of course, a nonfiction account. So not sure what we could spoil, but if you're spoiler reverse, you can pause now and get a copy and catch up. But otherwise, let's dig in. Our first segment for today will be called Surprises, Pleasant or Otherwise, which is self-explanatory. We're each going to pick out a couple of things or something from the book that surprised us, for better or worse. Amanda, why don't you take it away? Sure. Um, the thing that most surprised me um, as I'm reading this is just how much data is actually put into the yeah. book so far. There's a lot of statistics. There's a lot of science that she goes on to explain. I'm glad that she explains it and that the scientists who are explaining to her are doing such a great job of explaining it as well. Like the, I yes. pulled so many quotes from the scientists <laughs> themselves. Yeah. Extremely um, telling. I did also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I was surprised by how much data was in it because on page three, her stated stylistic choice is, um, I've tried to offer what is essential without oversimplifying. Similarly, I have tried to keep the discussion of scientific theory to a minimum while offering a full enough account to convey what is truly at stake. So that I was like, oh, well, is, is this a minimum as far as scientific theory? Because I feel like each chapter, a scientific theory is explored. Mm -hmm. Um, Not to say that I don't like it, because I do. And also on page two, she also said that her goal in writing this is to convey as vividly as possible the reality of global warming. So the use of vivid made me think that she would use a lot more imagery and um, would have more anecdotal evidence. Um, especially yeah. since the, I was, I guess I was expecting this to be more, especially since you said like field notes from a catastrophe, I was almost expecting it to be more like memoir-esque as far as the way that she was going to be writing it, um, rather than, uh, so heavy on, on data points and actual like scientific information. Well, you mean like field notes though? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause I mean, well, in, in yeah. the scientific term, that would, field notes would be, here's the observational data I have pulled from research in the field. It, it does. I right. mean, I, you're not wrong, though, because it does. It could go the other way, which is like, here's my diary of these profound changes I've witnessed. It's not that at all. It is much more. Right. I'm distilling the field notes of experts so that you can read it so that it's accessible. And I will do the yeah, it's just good journalism in that simple sense of like, I will do the legwork. I will try and cull all the stuff that doesn't matter and focus on these most powerful examples and relevant data. She does dive a little bit into I don't know if we'd call it vivid. But when she visits a place, she at least allows herself a little bit of setup. There's also that scene when she visits the um, receding glacier in Iceland where she kind of takes a little bit of a day and travels and takes a car out and goes yeah. and visits, visits that for herself. It, it's not. It's certainly not overwritten, though, and in fact, it's very efficient in lean writing, basically right. at every turn. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, totally. It is. Would you say it's the most difficult nonfiction book we've covered so far? Because I would say it is by even by a wide margin. Uh, I would say that it is the most data driven. I I don't find the reading difficult. I I find the science really interesting and really well explained so that it doesn't I, d- I don't get confused while I'm reading it. Um, and I'm not yes. a science-minded person by any means. Um, <laughs> so I think that's pretty telling. Um, I, my eyes have drooped a couple times in some of the paragraphs. But yes, on the whole, it's incredibly readable. And for as much factual, compact info as being pressed upon you in this book, I, yeah, I'm not sure how you'd make it more readable without sacrificing right. like significant understanding points or analysis or science (laughs) you'd have to cut a lot of science just to make that work so no i i applauded for that for sure but this is the only one where i've definitely finished a paragraph and thought you know i thought i got that example but then the way she ended it made it clear like i don't think i got that concept at all like i don't (laughs) there was some inverse (laughs) you know moisture point data flip thing and i'm like i don't uh maybe i comprehended that maybe i should probably reread it nothing no more um no more poignant a moment than that that when she pulls the code from the GISS um, database or algorithm. What is that what it's mm-hmm. called? It's some kind yeah. of climate predict prediction model, the computer model. Yeah. And so that was just like, why are you doing this? This is not helping anyone. <laughs> what are you, you're just trying to shame me now that I can't understand code or I don't know this coding language. <laughs> like, I don't know what any of these commands mean and I don't know what these variables are or what these constants are. <laughs> yeah, I like that part. I was like, yep, glazing over that. I don't yeah. know why that image is in that algorithm is in there because i can't read that (laughs) yeah yeah i'll get back to that in the in the make it stop section hold on to that thought let's talk about another surprise then i will just briefly say in terms of style natural segue i was surprised just how much like a new yorker article this read and or read like that style very clean writing they allow some bursts of creativity so it it does kind of invite a little bit of author's touch. And I think the New Yorker's nonfiction always does this. You feel the author a little, but it also is restrained. You can tell it's been through some kind of like, I don't think they do it through an algorithm. It's just people editing writing, but there's some kind of process. There's some kind of expectation of their, of their in-house style that it just has a New Yorker feel to me. And I think it's also Mm -hmm. the kind of writing that's enlightening and accessible enough to pull you along it also is demanding enough to require some rereads. I already mentioned this, that she does simplify things well. She pulls in scientists who make clever analogies to things. I'll get to a quote about a rowboat later. So it's like, it's very readable, but also it, it's not going to hold your hand. And I think it, well, some transitions actually hold your hand, but it's not going to, it's not encyclopedic. It's not like a textbook. It is more, it will demand more of you than that. And so I guess I, I don't know. I put this under surprises. I guess I shouldn't be shocked, though, because this this book began as a series of articles for The New Yorker. I suppose right. I was just surprised that, like, in a chapter-by-chapter basis, if you sit down at night and you read a magazine before you go to bed, this just feels like that to me. Like, if you read a chapter of this per night, it would be like ending your night with, like, a thoughtful magazine article. <laughs> and it'd be like, oh, yeah, it's got that same pacing. It's got that little bit of personality. But then, mm-hmm. of course, yes, it like The New Yorker, it hits you with some pretty heavy research and is pretty well vetted so i guess the flow of that and the approach to the writing surprised me a little bit um because you could just have told me that each of these chapters was an article that they just copy pasted together that makes sense to me it definitely could be chunked up in that way um and it definitely reads more like a a news article to me like yeah for sure especially the um what uh, she does as far as like inputting some like random um, the the descriptions of the people that she's talking to the scientists and then yep. there's like yep. no other like descriptions and it's just like science 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 very new oh here's a move. here's the this poignant thing that I want to point out science 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 like it's yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah a very much a New Yorker move for sure yeah yeah no totally I, I'll comment one more thing on the style that surprised me. This was the only other thing I, I wrote for surprises. She is completely committed when she pulls a metaphor or an idea or something. And I'm thinking of the Akkad example and then also the, the just the background of that frog. 
she just commits all the way. Like I found myself surprised in the Akkad chapter, how much she kept that analogy or that example going. And she even sprinkles it with other historical comparisons to the, to the Mayans and to other, you know, just empires and stuff, but she always returns to it and she does try and make it kind of wrap or envelop the chapter, which I respect that commitment. I don't know. I think the frog chapter was the most flat to me. Like I don't, the point was well taken as all these chapters points are because that's she's careful to lay out her case but i just it just didn't do much for me i don't feel like the scientific details of it were engaging or particularly memorable or something but i do admire that she commits to the form maybe this is because i spend my entire day editing high school writers who are just so bad at writing (laughs) i don't Mm -hmm. i don't know why i'm bringing my crappy high school analytical writing lens to this but it's it's just good to see somebody who has a coherent vision of a chapter and then sticks to it and then fulfills the vision or something i'm giving very faint praise now but that's i guess i'm just i responded to it especially in the akkad chapter because at some point it felt like you could cut this off now and just move on to your point and kind of abandon it but she doesn't it comes back a couple of times she revisits it at the end and she reminds us why that mattered she also takes a long time setting it up like it's there's a couple pages of background of this empire and you you can't help but wonder as she builds you know what is the intention of this and so she sticks with it though and i admire that yeah um the the only thing that i remember about the frog chapter is the the guy that actually found the golden toad or whatever and mm-hmm. like the way that they mate and he the what did he say something about like golden balls just like everywhere yeah he's yeah. talking about their mating that's like the only thing i remember from that chapter yeah <laughs> I, I i actually yeah. laughed i was like ah, classic funny. juvenile humor <laughs> can show up anywhere including in new yeah. yorker-esque articles and writings <laughs> and chapters so point taken yeah. any other surprises <laughs> or should we move on let's move on Let's talk about Please Continue, Make It Stop. This is something we do for fiction and nonfiction books, but we'll do it especially for nonfiction. We've each chosen something that we wish to continue in the book, stylistic, idea-based, organization, something like that, rhetorical things, and then one that we want to make stop. I will go first because I already mentioned this, but I'll follow up now. I would like my Make It Stop to be a semi-committed one. I'm only going halfway in because I think it works sometimes and then doesn't. The quantitative info in the book, but especially the visuals, very mixed for me. Some of them feel utterly pointless to have included, and then some are totally essential. Um, So here's Mm -hmm. a couple that I'm thinking of. When she models the GISS model and shows that it's it's like here, this the earth is cubes or like the environment, we made it into cubes. I don't need, like what did that, it didn't show me the segment that she pulled. It didn't say what they measured from it or how, it, it was just literally like, here's how we make the atmosphere look like cubes. To me, not the most compelling visual or the most interesting thing. I think you could describe it and just say, imagine if the atmosphere above the earth was turned into cubes. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. okay, <laughs> stacked like box. And the funny thing with that visual, and that was on, I think, page 43. Or no, 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 I'll get to 43. But when the GIS is shown, she describes it better in the paragraph than the image almost shows. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, you already did the work to translate this for the reader. I don't, some of the visuals just haven't meant anything to me, basically. I also will point out quickly on page 43, she shows a visual showing how in the last 50 years, carbon dioxide has increased at a pretty steady rate or the amount in the atmosphere has increased. It is almost a perfect linear line, like literally perfect. The parts per million increase there's no deviation basically if -hmm. it's that perfect i don't need to see it then it was nice to be just to show it's almost like she's proving that she's got the goods but it's like you've got the goods because you researched it and met with all the scientists and you told us the reports you read the visual isn't going to push it over the top for me though right i'm perhaps to a different reader that would hit hit differently it would be impactful in in a certain way to see how clear the trend is it's like you can't argue this trend but i don't know again another time where i just felt like i would save it for something more technical and harder to understand final one i pulled for this would make it stop because it was the final one i responded to kind of negatively on page 79 the frog trend those lines are so close to she in the text she says something like you can see that it clearly like these lines are clearly deviating but the ones it's like a scatter plot type graph the lines right. are differing but it's not profound i felt like it should have been zoomed in or something to show just how you know vast the gap is it just didn't seem like the most meaningful visual aid to me again it was another case where i just felt like those lines are you know it's a scatter plot so already it's kind of hard to pick apart the data although there's a line of best fit and everything so anyway overall the quantitative stuff with the visuals 
not always doing much for me in this book, but you know, I'd say half good, half bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Like the, there were a couple of them and there was even one where I was like, Oh, I wish she would have graphed that. Um, which was yes. Yes. when she's talking about, um, the, they marked up like the different, uh, cultural highlights versus like what happened in nature at that same time. One was marked in red and one was marked in, in black. Oh, yeah. And like you could like overlay it and see like how it kind of corresponds with each other. And I was like, oh man, that'd be really cool to see because I mean, she gave us a couple of examples from it, but I, I thought that would be an image that would be something that I mm-hmm. would actually like to look at. Um, but yeah, yeah, and then there were others where I was just like, I don't even. Why, why is this here? <laughs> she mentioned a couple, she mentions a couple of maps from different geo, not geographic, geolithic eras, d- times yeah. of climate, basically. I, I don't know the scientific term. Um, I'm surprised that the first scientific term I've forgotten or botched on this episode. We're <laughs> who knows how many will be, you know, are left on the episode for me to mispronounce or forget. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> different eras of geography and climate, like we're in the hollow scene and any, anyway. So if you read the book, you'll know what that means. If not, just, you know, I guess do some Googling. At any rate, some of those times I felt like a map would help me visualize better just how much of the earth will be gone or different. Or, But she describes it again pretty well. She says things like, there were alligators in Colorado. And so it's like she mm-hmm. does give these little snippets of visual, these, I guess, little vivid pockets to make it clear. But I agree with you. I, I have to imagine one of the hardest parts of this book was deciding which visuals to include because as we know with the depth of the science she's done or researched, investigated, that it's, she must have been facing a million options. Like, I'm sure she took away a lot of data from the people she met or at least had access to a lot of data. So anyway, for me, it's like some work, some don't. How about, um, how about one for you? Um, so my make it stop is um, some of her attempts at injecting style have just really fallen flat for me. Um, so I've loved all the scientific bits, um, but some of the things that she does to add her authorial flair is just, I'm like, eh, that's not necessary. Just give me the science. Like, <laughs> um, So like the physical descriptions of each scientist she's met with are just unnecessary and they don't actually play a part in any kind of discussion later or in any, like, right. like any way to, to make me think that it's important. It's just like, here's a, a brief, like three, here's three adjectives to describe uh, my first impression of this person. Okay. Moving on to what he said, like, totally. it's just, it's just unnecessary. And, um, she ends some of the chapters as well with an attempt at a visualization or like an emotional appeal. And these don't always do anything for me. Um, one example that I chose was from page, um, 121, which is the end of, um, chapter five, which is the curse of a cod, uh, that chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're talking about, um, tell Leland Leland. Yeah. The, lo- that location. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he passed me one of the fragments. I held it in my hand for a moment and tried to imagine the last Acadian who had touched it. Then I passed it back. The end. That's the end of the chapter. She does leave just, almost all chapters dangling like that. Yeah. So I'm just like, I know that that's, that's her particular style. But again, I'm just like, I don't need it. I, I really don't need that. Um, it, it doesn't add anything for me. And, and in fact, I'm, it just makes me prefer the scientific bits even more yeah um and there are also sometimes where her her organization of her ideas sometimes can be uh for me a bit um, jarring it's like it doesn't quite flow as well for me as i think she intends um which i mean i love her analogies and i love um a lot of them aren't even her analogies, but the scientists' analogies and stuff. I I think that those descriptions are great and and those comparisons are great. Um, But when she attempts to introduce a new idea, but then like throw in, so she'll introduce an idea, then throw in the science and then try to tie it back to that idea. But there's no mention in between of that idea. Again, it's just like really jarring for me sometimes. And Mm -hmm. for that, I have an example on page 110. Which is when she um, is uh, introduces the idea of 
President Bush and, and Ryan. So one afternoon when I was talking to Ryan in his office, he mentioned a visit that President George W. Bush's science advisor, John Marburger III, had paid to GISS a few years earlier. Okay, and then she goes on to talk about um, the, the science of the Beaufort scale, the Palmer Drought Severity Index, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, more about the GFDL model, all this stuff. And then it's not until like two paragraphs later and one paragraph is like ginormous. Uh, then mm-hmm. it says, obviously if you get drought indices uh, like these, there's no adaptation that's possible, but let's say it's not that severe. What adaptation are we talking about? That's the reference back to um, Marburger asking, hey, how do we adapt to climate change? Right. So it's like yeah. a, a page later, she refers back to that in his res- response to that. But the science in between, it's just like this big block of information that breaks up that attempt at tying it all together so there's organizational moments like that where i'm just i'm just not as like into it yeah there's that one is a tough one because i'm not sure of the solution and i don't know if there's even an elegant solution when you need to dump that much data onto the reader for them to have a clear picture of this or for them to feel like they're not expert enough to know it, but at least informed enough to understand the point being delivered. Yeah, there's right. no... I will say that, like I mentioned earlier, the science itself, the paragraphs have been just dense enough at times. I've probably done 7 to 10 page rereads in this one so far. You know, Out of 125, mm-hmm. that's not egregious by any stretch, and it's, yeah. it is readable. But yeah, there's definitely been enough pausing or references, explanations that are that are intense. The transitions, I can't say... Again, I'm not sure what the solution to that would be, but it's well observed. I think to me, going back to your first point, though, especially the descriptions of the people she meets, very New Yorker-esque, as we've already established. That's a very New Yorker move. But also, I've always thought of that this way. Would the alternative then be to do to say nothing? And I, to me, that would be worse. I would rather have the two sentences over the zero just because it gives them some level of humanity instead of just being a total blank. Now, I think the person she travels with it for in the first chapter from Russia, the permafrost guy, he brings his Romanofsky. Doritos. Yeah, he's chomping on him to stay awake. Like, she does give, and I, and I just wonder, too, is it like, do you afford more time on the page in that way, that personal way, kind of humanizing way, because of the time you spend with them? Or is it about how critical they are to the story, quote unquote, this narrative you're telling? I, I don't know how those decisions are made, but I will say that, again, I would rather have the two sentences to the zero. They're definitely not hitting in any profound way. They're not registering to me as sort of an insightful, decisive moment for her to, to say something. It is just to breathe life into otherwise a person whose name is going to feel like dead weight for the next 10 pages. Or You know what I mean? Right. It's And I think for some readers, it makes total sense that that's just not never going to be never going to be enough or something it's just kind of either either dive into some backstory and and flesh them out or just leave it be and give me the data like dump you know just dump the data on me give me the science right um and i think her is an intermediary i mean her job not only is to try and understand collate and simplify but it is to humanize a bit too to just breathe a little bit of life into it make the reading pleasurable and easygoing and everything so i guess my view on it is it doesn't bug me and i but i I also don't find profound joy in it it's mostly just it feels like a pleasant what do they say in the the french it's like an amuse bouche or something is that what it's called when you do the little taster Mm -hmm. at the beginning or it's like a palate cleanser yeah or think of it you know it's like a piece of ginger between to change your palate for sushi or something like that it's it's just a little sample to refresh and i i have enjoyed those little tidbits but they're definitely not hitting me it's it's just such not the purpose here it's totally just there to buffer (laughs) Yeah, I think with like specifically Romanovsky, perhaps because she spent more time with him, I felt mm-hmm. I did get more description from him and about him, yeah, which yeah. is why I remember his name so well. Um, yep, it's because um, not only did we get a physical description of him, but because she described his actions, the way he hunches over and stuff like that, there's a lot more actual like description associated with him. Versus the other side, a lot of the other scientists that she introduces where the only thing I know about them is that this person has thinning hair, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> or they're it, stout you know? or, you know, yeah, they, they, they're squat to the ground or what have you. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So so the amount of description like with Romanovsky, I appreciated that because that was like, okay, mm-hmm. I can I can actually picture this guy and and he's he's somebody that I can like I I associate now with this idea. But right. with the others it's just like, yeah, it's it does nothing for me. Yeah, to me it's almost just like a little bit of a hand warmer before you get inside the house. Maybe that's a better analogy. I'll just keep oh, throwing nice. analogies out there. <laughs> but it's just, it's just something <laughs> to tide you over before you know the bigger feast or the bigger moment is coming, which is again mm-hmm. the the um, discussion of the scientific concepts, explaining the research, you know, clarifying things for the reader, all that good stuff. Let's move into the please continues because I think we both just did the make it stops, right? Yes, we did. Yeah. I'll do mine first. Pretty basic one. Honestly, I don't even think I have a quote for this. Just the scope of it is, I think, the great success. The fact that she's traveled widely, the fact that it's a definitely an international focus, though. Notably, some continents have not been. She hasn't gone to Asia or Africa, notably, to pretty massive continents that will to feel climate change in ways that other places won't because of the geography and populations and everything. So it's, mm-hmm. I, there are some notable missing chunks of this for sure. And it does seem pretty Euro, Euro American centric, maybe because of language research budgets, yada, yada universities that have the budgets to study stuff. We could go on and on, but I, in general, I'll just say that I think the globe trotting nature, the variety of people she speaks with, that has been the most pleasurable thing. And again, it's not like their personalities are popping, but it just gives a sc- grand scope. Like you mentioned, there's um, houses being raised up on poles in the Netherlands. There's an ice sheet in Iceland. There's um, you know, there's the frog in England. <laughs> there's Alaska was in study for a bit. Obviously, she does go back to some universities in the U.S. a lot to check in with people and do re- you know get research information. So, yeah, I just think that's been – I just appreciate that she undertook that and took it seriously, traveled to the Arctic, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like that she's showing that it's not just one part of the world, but specifically with, like, the Netherlands, what I enjoyed about that is is compared to uh, the United States' response to climate change, we see that a country is, like, already – making changes yeah um trying to adapt and displacing and, people yeah displacing people for now and mm-hmm. um but making it so that millions of others aren't <laughs> no total i mean this is yeah. the we don't need to this is an odd book because we're not a political we're not a political advocacy policy podcast or something, but it's hard to <laughs> hard not to inject some kind of ideas, political or otherwise, into a book like this. Anyway, the point I'm just I was trying to dance around it, but it's like, I, what else do, is there to do? It's people will have to be displaced. Either you do it now or you do it later when most of them will die while displacing. I don't. There's exactly. not really another <laughs> like these are the tough decisions. And I think as the people in the Netherlands argued, and I, you know they're paying farmers out, they're trying. To do, I'm sure they're trying to be somewhat ethical, reasonable about it, but it's the hard decisions are going to come anytime at some time. So you either try and do them early or you can try and do it later. But I think it's pretty clear what the decisions later will involve. So it's, I don't know, it just seems, it's, it seems pretty reasonable, though I get that it's, there's enormous political pressure and pain to that. So it's, right. you know, not some simple thing. But yeah, that, I thought that was a pretty, that was one of the only clear political kind of moments in the story so far story yeah work yeah yeah and uh, what's I, I bet it's going to be more so later <laughs> no totally and i and i hope so it's certainly yeah. become more of a political hot button issue in the last decade i would say we've there's been more international meetings since then there was the paris thing that we pulled out of and then re, there's rejoined there's all kinds of things um so oh, yeah yeah it's become a much more global it was always global but it's become much more globally relevant um what about your please continue um, mine is just the scientific information. I've, I've really enjoyed the science, the explanations, the analogies, all of it. Um, it's been mm-hmm. really informative and really well explained. And not just like that she explains it well, which she does, but that the scientists themselves, I, I guess because they've had to explain it a million times to like different politicians and different media outlets and stuff. Um, totally. They're just... They're so great at explaining the the significance of their findings and using those analogies. And it's yeah. everything has been like very clear for me, and I'm not a science person at all. And I just I really appreciate that this is I'm getting the scientific information without it, you know, being 
oversimplify to the to to be something that doesn't have the same significance as like trying to just un- understand like the actual science behind it. So I think yeah. it, that's that's the the highlight for me. Yeah, it's a compact little volume that chooses its generalizable moments well. Like it's she obviously had a ton of different examples and obviously as she mentions many times, this is an inter this is an, an issue or a topic that intermingles so many different things that it's almost impossible to understand fully. That's why the GIS computer model has like a million lines of code or whatever. It's like yeah. you're trying to account for so many science. We we understand the parts of the science barely well enough that trying to coalesce it all into one coherent theory or vision just seems maddening. But anyway, yeah. so it's obviously then in the scope of the book, what what examples do you want to pick from? What you know, what sciences do you want to explore? And I think it's all been pretty well argued. In and it's so it's well chosen and she's picked things that are generalizable things where you finish the tundra one and you understand i get why you'd want to talk about temperature in that way now and mm-hmm. why you wouldn't want to talk about temperature of other things instead right. and so yeah no totally i think that's i mean there's no better compliment i guess you could pay a book with this kind of vision yeah do you think it's readable enough for should we run it through our arbitrary audience of people we just pick randomly would your mom be able to read this um, I think so. There are some terms in here that maybe because she's a not a native English speaker. Oh yeah, that uh, does. Yeah, that adds a twist. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's um, true. The so she she might there are some words there that she might have to look up. Um, she also didn't like you know science taught in Korea is definitely going to use completely different scientific terms. <laughs> sure, yeah, of course. Um, but like my dad, 100%, yeah, he would he would understand all of it for sure. What about your cousin? Uh, hmm, I have so many, but <laughs> yeah. Or the, I was sure thinking of the cousin, mine. how many cousins of yours have I met that were at your wedding? I was thinking of your, co- was oh, your yeah. cousin at your wedding. <laughs> yeah, actually, I had a... Uh, Three of my cousins were there, yeah. What about all three? Um, But I know which one you're talking about. (laughs) Any of them, any of them. (laughs) Yeah, they would totally understand, yeah. And um, the one that you're thinking of, she is a native English speaker. The other two um, are not. Um, I was doing this based on demographics of age. This has gone way off the rails now. Now it's become (laughs) a language check. (laughs) No, that's what you've apologized. I'm the one. I didn't even think through that variable. I was just thinking, (laughs) let's do an age check for someone who I know is older than we are and then younger. That was was the whole intention was like, how would a person significantly older react to this? And how would a person, (laughs) uh, maybe not significantly younger, but younger react to this anyway. So, you know, her generation, I think, would understand this very well. I think that it's it's written specifically so that if you've gone through basic science class, like you don't uh-huh. even have to go through like high school science, right? right. Um, you can understand the, mm-hmm. what's going on in 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 this in the scientific community here, the way that they explain it. I think it's very clear. Yeah, the the gas science especially, greenhouse effect, all that, uh, pretty mm-hmm. basic stuff. You cover that stuff yeah. in seventh and eighth grade, roughly. Right. You know, the sci- in terms of what molecules are and how air behaves and yada yada. That's yeah. a periodic table. That's, yeah, nothing mind-blowing there, really. Yeah, and I was just thinking, I, in terms of the tone of this, it definitely, and we'll get into quotes here because of the segue, I guess, but it's it's definitely filled with people, exasperated older people, especially men, who are just clearly, like, they know they'll be dead, so they don't really know what to say or how to put it potently, right. or they, they just seem very, like I said, exasperated. So I'm not an older generation person or a person who, you know, let's say has between 40 to 50 years left to live. I'm not sure what their reaction would be or how they would respond to this, and I'm sure they have a bit of, I don't know, maybe defeat, defeatist or defeatism, fatalism about them. Who knows? I, that uh, Plenty of the scientists in this book definitely have that tone. It seems yeah. to be either they're fascinated because they get to witness something that they thought may be impossible, and then, or it's the kind of, well, I, we don't have many options, and because no one knows anything about what's going to happen, the l- odds are bad. That that's Yeah, it's like taking the odds and the bets. So at any rate, let's get into those quotes because I'm sure we'll pull quotes in that in that tone and tenor. Um, we're going to yeah. end with the segment on cocktail party quotes. These are quotes we have pulled because they would make for good, fascinating conversation at cocktail parties. Please feel free to steal any and all of the quotes and conversation thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> Use them at your next COVID-friendly cocktail party, I guess. 
an odd title for a segment that we've done during COVID. <laughs> Who knows if yeah, we'll ever change yeah, it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A distanced yard party quotes is maybe what we should call it. There we go. That's nice. right. That's right. Socially distanced <laughs> party quotes. Anyway, Amanda, why don't you start us off with a quote? Sure. Um, I'll start off with a quote from Romanovsky. Um, This is from page 20. In the air temperature, the signal is very small compared to noise. What permafrost does is it works as low-pass filter. That's why we can see trends much easier in permafrost temperatures than we can see them in atmosphere. In most parts of Alaska, the permafrost has warmed by 3 degrees since the early 1980s. In some parts of the state, it has warmed by nearly 6 degrees. So I chose this quote because it shows, so one of the points that um, Colbert tries to make is that the, especially at the beginning of the book, is that the, the need to make changes is not visible to everyone, right? So the changes that are happening right now aren't always visible to the rest of the world because we're not directly affected by it yet. Right, um, right. And so the the temperature changes, the the melting of the glaciers, um, of ice sheets, the you know, the fluctuations in temperature and the acidity in the ocean. Like these are things that you know we don't know about, and we we might know about, but we're like, well, how does that affect us? I don't know, whatever. Um, so the the permafrost that Romanovsky is. Um, studying he's making the point that yeah okay so temperature that's one thing but when you have this permafrost and you know that it's 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 in the name it's permafrost it's like meant to be permanent like it's you know um it's there and you it's an actual measurable thing where you can actually there are like holes in some parts of Alaska where the permafrost has right. melted. Yeah, it's right? gone. Yeah. yeah, so there's like an actual visualization of how it is affecting residents of Alaska and residents of other areas where the permafrost is melting. So I, I pulled that because it's like even though we ourselves, like in North Carolina, we don't really see it, right? But but there are other places that are already witnessing the changes. Iceland is one, another example. Greenland is another one. Netherlands, right? So I thought that mm-hmm. was pretty important. Yeah, and it, and it is a great counterexample, if one should even be needed at this stage of this science, to kind of discuss the weather versus climate issue, how weather can behave one way when the climate's mm-hmm. going another. This is a classic idiocy move, one of... Shall we actually do some naming and shaming here? This was one of Trump's go-to things. It's cold outside, therefore it's not happening. Like this, I can't believe we have to explain this. That's a literal second or third grade talk. (laughs) It's very easy to explain why that's not what climate means, and that's not what that, that's weather. It's a very different thing. Anyway, so yeah, it's just a good counter to that because it's permafrost by its very nature because it takes so long to build it. When it changes, that is a distinct climate type event, not even exactly. that's not a weather event. <laughs> so, yeah. Th- yeah, anyway, that's a good example for sure. I'll throw a quote out here. And I feel like and I noticed this when I was pulling the quotes. I think most of the quotes I pulled for this book so far kind of reiterate the same point, though it's a crucial one in terms of this issue and humankind and especially then like political ramifications. But this is the quote I pulled. It's um, Pirovich says it on 34. Pirovich said that he also um, liked a regional analogy. The way I've been thinking about it, riding my bike around here is you ride by all these pastures. Or no, I'm reading the wrong quote. My gosh, no other one top. <laughs> this is his first quote. And on the one <laughs> hand, you think it's the Earth's climate system. It's big. It's robust. And indeed, it has to be somewhat robust or else it would be changing all the time. On the other hand, the climate record shows that it would be a great mistake to assume that change when it comes will come gradually. Perovich offered a comparison that he had heard from a glaciologist friend. The friend likened the climate system to a rowboat. You can tip and then you'll just go back. You can tip it and just go back. And then you tip it and you get to the other stable state, which is upside down, which is quite a frightening image. And I think in terms of it is odd to think that a lot of the best metaphors or imagery from the book comes from the scientists. But, you know, they think about it the most and they've had the most time to kind of contemplate what these changes can mean anyway but yeah it's a frightening notion and it's not wrong that yeah you can mess with something a bunch of times and not have profound effects 
but the earth is too complex with too many interconnected systems at play in balance that this is the classic the other classic non-climate example is the poles like we know that the poles sometimes reverse polarity they just do that <laughs> but of course yeah. in our in our human recorded history they, that's never happened which if it that were to occur tomorrow that would profoundly change things on earth and how yeah. life has to be lived uh same with solar certain types of solar flares like it's pretty provable in the record that if you certain types of solar flares occur that it can like radically affect the earth's you know systems interlocked climate systems and this is just a good analogy that shows yeah you can have a bunch of minute changes that feel like you're still in the boat perhaps earth in 200 years will just have a new normal but that we have no history of having survived in the normal we have no history of humankind's success in that version of normal there's no we have no reason to believe we're all of a sudden going to be able to thrive in whatever the upside down boat looks like (laughs) and so i just thought it was one of the more potent images for sure and a good just a good clear explanation of how this is a specific type of problem that we're facing with a very specific type of ramification or like uh, long-term forecasting, I suppose. And it, it ties really well too with another point that um, Colbert tries to make in, in this text, which is that there's a point of no return, especially um, she mentioned specifically with the um, uh, glacial melting, right? So yeah, like yeah. as soon as the, the ice sheet begins to melt it's just a self-fulfilling thing where other even if we we tip it that way and we don't mess with it anymore it's still because we've tipped it far enough to where it has started the actual melting process with that right it the the effects of that will just continue the melting even if we stop try to stop co2 emissions and stuff like that it's like right there's a point of no return where we won't even have control over that so that Yeah. yeah that's a pretty important point she, that she tries to make with the sheet too she makes the she does the um good quality writing thing she does throughout which is she takes a bunch of simple science concepts that again are not the most complex things to understand about how water reflects light about how melting works about how and it, she just shows how you know we can't predict for sure but every basic scientific concept would say that it's a compounding exponential problem that can't be reversed and that's it. Like, of course, we don't know because we've never been around to watch it happen. But right. Why would it not occur this way? Every observable thing, every truth and fact of science, of pretty simple science, would show this is how light and water and then heat behave. And so you mm-hmm. just add these things up and you, th- yeah, I don't know. It's the maddening thing about trying to solve a problem that isn't fully arrived, getting people on board with that. Um, do you have another quote you want to share? Yeah, uh, this one is a quote from the scientist Webb, and this is from pages 85 to 86. He says, we have this strange sense of the evolutionary hierarchy that the microorganisms, because they came first, are the most primitive. And yet you could argue that this will just give a lot of advantage to the microorganisms of the world because of their ability to evolve more quickly. To the extent the climate is putting organisms as well as ecosystems under stress, it's opening the opportunities for invasive species on the one hand and disease on the other. I guess I start thinking, think death. (laughs) So I chose that one because I was like, it shows like the scientist is like, I mean, he's he sees it as a very important and dire situation that we're in. And he also makes the point, and this ties in with the idea of like um, uh, with the, the people and the mosquitoes in that example, what their, their conclusion is um, that climate is driving evolution in certain species mm-hmm. which I find interesting, especially when she goes on to write about how, humans are like resistant to adapting and changing (laughs) um for climate change (laughs) Um, and and then his point webb's point being like um we perhaps are more evolutionary resistant um whereas these microorganisms they they're like really quick to um to change and to adapt to their situations which makes them more likely to live and that's why he makes the point like i guess i start thinking think death so it's like if we don't start making changes if we don't start adapting if we don't start trying to to change things then then yeah it's it's not going to look great for us 
Yeah. And I think, too, it's all about scale. I've got a quote, and then I'll I'll throw this on the end of yours because it's relevant to that, too. This is a quote from, it's Rind on page 111. He talks about adapting, too. And he says, because the way the models project this is global warming gets going. Once you've adapted to one decade, you're going to have to change everything the next decade. And then we may have we may say that we're more technologically able than earlier societies. But one thing about climate change is it's potentially geopolitically destabilizing. And we're not more technologically able only. We're also more technologically destructively able as well. I misread that quote, but the point's the same. <laughs> I think it's impossible predict to predict what will happen, I guess, though I won't be around to see it. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that by 2100, most things were destroyed. He paused. That's sort of an extreme view. So it's I think there's two couple things about the quote. The first is it captures a lot of the tone of these semi-defeated sounding scientists who are clear that they'll be dead or they're they acknowledge that but they can't help but prognosticate and try and be helpful like and, yeah. and give it give the current humans on earth as much as they can do to fix things and adjust and try and adapt but there's a couple other ideas in this quote that were i think very meaningful the one i would add on to what you just said is the thing about adaptation because it's it's pretty clear so far that politically, geopolitically, internationally, that we're having a tough time adjusting. And so the other issue becomes, okay, let's say that we can make changes. Humans are resilient. Humans currently live in most parts of the earth, don't we? I mean, we kind of spread ourselves out. We can, we've right. shown adaptability to an extent. But the problem is that it, because of these things compounding, because of it becoming an exponential problem, you're going to have to learn to adjust more quickly. You're going to have to change faster. Thus far, what in our history has shown that we're ready to do that? We're barely adjusting now. And barely mm -hmm. is pretty generous. So it's yeah. maybe it's just going to take a couple of key, very visible, very noticeable changes in people's lives. Maybe it'll have to be some kind of mega drought that hits most of the earth or so. I don't know. Who knows? So far, no weather event or climate event has been able to persuade people in a massive way. I mean, obviously, there's been pretty big political action in terms of protesting and demonstrating, but it hasn't been enough to cause some massive rejiggering of the way people live, at least not in America, right? So it's, right. so you just help, but you can't help but wonder with a quote like that, which, you know, that seems to be what it's, it's just going to compound and things will accelerate. And so you have to be then ready to change and adapt to new issues all the time. And I just don't, right. there, there's just no evidence that we're going to be able to do it. I, who knows? Maybe at that point, our mindsets will shift and people will change the way they live or something. But it's, of course, then the, the defeatist quote about, you know, we also have tools of destruction now, not only tools of of savior technology, but we've, we've developed right. technology for, as it turns out, a couple of purposes, uh, one of which is helpfulness and saving lives. And we've invented other technology too. So it's, yeah, I mean, that's one of the bleaker reads for sure, but I, the adaption and compounding the whole idea of having to reset every so often to like completely rethink how you live. Uh, there's just no evidence that we've been able to, or that we've been willing to do that. Yeah. And, and that particular quote that you read, it's, it was in response to, um, Bush's person being like, how, how can we in the future adapt to it? And, and the point I think that, um, he was trying to make as well is that by not trying to fix it now, by not trying to make changes now, it's it, by putting it off and making plans for the future adaptations. It's just, it's foolish. It's yeah. not going to help anything. Yeah, totally. Do you have a final quote you want to read? Yeah, um, I've got one from D. Minocle. And it's funny because I kept in my mind, for whatever reason, I kept calling him Demonocle. <laughs> but his nice, name is, nice. I think, Demonocle. That's an old Victorian <laughs> rapper. Some say the first rapper ever <laughs> on earth is Demonocle. Um, and this is from page 117. The thing Tell Lylan couldn't prepare for was the same thing that we won't prepare for because in their case, they didn't know about it and because in our case, the political system can't listen to it. And that is that the climate system has much greater things in store for us than we think. Um, so I thought that was pretty telling. Um, and also it's like, she's definitely going to be talking more about the politics of climate change for sure and like why it is that uh, specifically the United States probably has not done a whole lot with like curbing CO2 emissions and stuff like right, that. Right. Um, 
So I, I thought that was interesting. And also to compare like what's happening now to what we have like found information about in the past where yes, tell Lylan was um, a thriving city and stuff like this. But then all of a sudden, like it was abandoned because of a drought, which was also tied to like some temperature changes and stuff like that. The drought was so like that, that change that climate, uh, climate change completely, obviously like destroyed a, a city. We don't know what happened to the people. We assume that they left. Right. Um, but the, we have evidence in the past of like what something that's not even as extreme as what some scientists are predicting for um, our future if we don't um, change th- that it's still destroying cities then like why aren't we we have evidence of the past why not why aren't we reacting now mm-hmm. and why is it that politics is the thing that's keeping us from doing it um, so I thought that was just really interesting yeah, it's you have to create vast incentive systems of some kind. I mean, you can either force it yeah. or try and incentivize it. There's no other governments have no other options. <laughs> They've, they yeah. force things or they incentivize and try and influence behavior. And so you have yeah. to but you have to come up with some kind of robust system to try and guide people, manipulate people. Or, you know, do as the Netherlands did. You t- you take people's land. In the, well, in their case, they need to take land. I don't know if the U.S. needs to do that as much, but you need to, you know, radically incentivize or perhaps just take drastic action and, you know, political systems, especially democracies are resistant to that. It's, you know, one of the great d- design geniuses. And also, if you want to say it, flaws of any democratic system, it's, it's kind of meant to be slow and unwieldy. It's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. You're meant to mix it up. You're meant to have complex responses that don't have, you know, that don't get clear answers right away. You're meant to be slow. And anyway, so yeah, it's, we're insulated against radical quick action. It's just the political reality of what we have. So that's definitely true. I, I picked one more quote. This is also related to politics too, from 142. Um, she says, all of Sokolow's calculations, I think that name's right, uh, calculations are based on the notion, clearly hypothetical, that steps to stabilize emissions will t- be taken immediately or at least within the next few years. The assumption is key, be- not only because we are constantly pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere, but also because, and this is why I pulled it, we are constantly building infrastructure that in effect guarantees that much more additional co2 will be released in the future in the united states the average new car gets about 20 miles to the gallon which i think since this was published that's probably improved uh, but anyway if it is driven a hundred thousand miles it would produce more than 11 metric tons of carbon a thousand megawatt coal plant built today meanwhile is likely to last 50 years and then at the end the overriding message of um, Sokolow's wedges is that the longer we wait and the more infrastructure we build without regard to its impact on emissions, the more daunting the task, task of keeping CO2 levels below 500 parts per million um, will become. This is another, and I feel like this is the theme of all my quotes, right? It's about compounding problems or not being aware of how you have to be, you have to think so much more long term and you have to be aware of the kind of not only ever adapting nature of this or how you're going to have to change, but also you just have to look further ahead than you're accustomed to when making those decisions or something. You have to, you have to somehow convince yourself as humans on an individual psychological level can have a hard time doing that. I I have a hard time doing, you have to convince yourself not to eat a brownie because it's not going to show up tomorrow, but it'll show up in 10 days or, or whatever, you know, pick, pick your medical psychological <laughs> phenomenon, but it's not so dissimilar. We're just facing it on a massive institutional geopolitical scale. It's, it's very similar to that. You have to ignore incentives today to sort of plan this out for tomorrow. And it's, you know, it, it's just a good quick, that was just a good quick example. Obviously the coal plant, right. the cars, all that, but you have to like be, have a bolder vision for the future and be, I guess, confident or bold enough to try and enact it and try and introduce some things that build to it. But it's, it is maddening though. It's one of the all time, some would say, uh, we'll see what humanity does in the next hundred to 200 years, maybe the defining issue of humankind. There's another scientist in here. I didn't pull the quote for this that talks about, you know, when we think about, are there other interstellar civilizations or aliens, all that, it, it could just be that we wind up in the, in the cosmic sense, a failed technological species that just could not figure out how to grapple with the things that we were able to make that it's just in some level, it was an impossibility for humankind to 
overcome some urges or some beliefs or some anything, some systems, and we just outstripped our own mental capabilities with what we made. I don't, that's, who's to say that's a cosmic impossibility? You know, it's when you think that broad, Mm -hmm. it's really not the most radical idea to have ever been proposed. But anyway, that's, you know, so you can go big picture like that, but I didn't pick the quote for that reason, that point. It was just, again, to reiterate how the, the book, I think, is extremely articulate and makes the point enough times to hammer it home that it's a long-term problem found it is going to create a situation where because it will worse begets worse that you have to be mentally or you know structurally i guess prepared for that for that reality and that you have to then i don't know be ready to adapt so and I, and i noticed too that um two out of the three quotes that you chose as well um they the scientists involved, they are responding to, um, like the second, um, quote that you used was in response to the Bush administration asking about adaptation in the future. This one, the Sokolo was hired by BP and, oh, somebody else. Um, it was, I forget what it was. Yeah. BP and Ford. Right. (laughs) Um, the carbon uh, mitigation Mm -hmm. initiative, which is a project funded by BP and Ford. Um, And so like on paper, it's like, Oh, politicians and industries, they want to uh, positively move forward with the idea of like, uh, you know, CO2 emission decrease and stuff like that. But then in the reality, there's so much pushback. They they Mm -hmm. don't actually want to. So like he, he has these wedges and, and he has this whole, um, idea of like how how we can slow down um, the the increase in CO two emissions at least until like you know other ideas come along, but there's no nobody's actually doing it. Of course, of course, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so on paper it's like yeah okay great we're gonna fund this idea and this is gonna be great and we're we're asking the right questions about adaptation but we're not actually gonna do any of that stuff yeah. and that's. I think that's a very important point, too, that um, Colbert is trying to make in this text. A thoughtful as well. species filled with inaction that just could not survive. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An interesting yep. folk will make for great ruins one day for another people to. I think that's. Isn't that another, like, scientist quote in here? One of them said something like, It's possible that somebody will come visit us in a million years and will think, This was a strange, intelligent species <laughs> that was yeah. here for a little. What a strange, what strange ruins they left. Yeah, it's it is pretty maddening. <laughs> I think too. Again, this is, gets to current events. But when you were talking about that with the BP Ford thing, the has COVID given you any confidence in this? I mean, this book obviously is filled with, if not pessimism, then at least like some pretty cold, stark reality. Increase your confidence <laughs> in an issue like this. We were faced with a version of this that was is shared some similarities in that it it could be out of view in a in a sense you know it's like if you didn't know someone who got it or that that you could maybe put it out of mind or something and it's i don't know i i can't help but draw analogies or, or just not mm-hmm. analogies comparisons to covid because it's also like yeah we also bootstrapped our way through some solutions but it's all it also didn't we didn't really succeed either it's you know we adapted kind of but then it was sometimes it was pretty half-hearted and it's and it didn't result in a great amount of success. We kind of brute forced our science. We basically brute forced science our way to, in America mm-hmm. anyway, to a solution. We used our wealth and resources to like brute force a vaccine that had never been made in that pace in human history. I, climate change just doesn't have anything like that. There's no, if, if the Midwest in 20 years, we can't plant crops there. Are we going to brute force our way to putting greenhouses in like every location on in the United States or something? Like, I don't, maybe, I guess I don't, <laughs> it just seems arrogant th- to think that you're going to be able to do that to all of your problems. And so I just, I don't know. There, there's some hope in it, I guess. I'm not totally defeatist or something in this, but it's when you look at COVID as just a microcosm, it's, yeah, we admire some of the lengths that were taken and people acted heroically and all of that stuff. But then again, in a broad scale sense and a, you know, structural sense, like, do we really think we have it together for something like this? Is this really, we were confident at that scale that this is something that we can do? I don't know. And we have, like, so much more time. We've had so much time to yeah. build a response. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and just to yeah. think, like the quote said, it's, we've had 40 years to make a 10-year plan or whatever. Pretty soon yeah. we're going to have five years to make a 10-year plan or two years. Yeah. You know, And at that point, 
it, it, and then the, the time scales or the gaps between significant climate disruptions are going to shrink and it's going to mm-hmm. be like well we put, we we defeated the mega tsunamis but now there's fires all the time and it's like are you ready to right. solve those things in se- sequential years you know in in 5 year gaps instead of a we had a basically a 40 year gap here to do something coherent and we really didn't come up with very much a couple of lighthearted changes <laughs> um and yeah. people have more solar power than before i guess that's a positive but i yeah it, it is it is bleak stuff i this book is i would say a bit more even-handed and you know addresses some of the the gaps not gaps in the science but the widths in them that there are mm-hmm. there's scenarios it's it could be any mixture of scenarios um it's not a totally bleak book but yeah, coming out of the last two years, it does make for a pretty particular tonal read, <laughs> a pretty particular thematic experience reading this now. Yeah, for sure. Any final quotes that you want to end on? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Okay. Well, we'll pause here for the part one book club on field notes from a catastrophe by Elizabeth Colbert. We will again be picking up part two of the book club next Friday. So if you Well, if you listen to this the day it came out, it'll be a week from today on the next Friday. If you're just listening to this at some other time, hey, it's probably already up in the feed by now. So (laughs) go check it out. I'm sure we posted part two. We do have other books coming up. So let me talk to you about that quickly before we close out. We have three other books chosen in order. They will be Burnt Shadows by Camilla Shamsey, True Grit by Charles Portis, and Homegoing by, is it Yag Yassi? I think so. Do you think the G is pronounced? I'll, I'll have to. That's another one that I'll like Colbert. I'll just keep punting and then I'll <laughs> and then I'll watch an interview like I did with her and then I'll figure it out anyway. So, yeah, those are the next three books. Again, Burnt Shadows, True Grit and Homegoing. And those are all novels. So we'll be getting back into our fiction pretty soon here. We'll, we'll escape to a world of fantasy, Amanda. Can you take much more of this? <laughs> <laughs> it's so bleak. <laughs> we do. We should follow up though and do that. That uninhabitable Earth book is the ulti- It really is like the ultimate doom guide to it. It's definitely prepper. It's not written by a prepper. It's written by some like acclaimed journalist, scientist person. I forget. I listened to an interview with him. He was really interesting. But it's it definitely takes the stand of like okay, so let's take every worst projection. Here's the practical data day what your life would be like then here's what you'll what life will feel like what we'll be able to accomplish and what we'll be able to do so that might be a good follow-up book to this but it's definitely much much more bleak yeah much more discussions of mass death and famine so then this book is sad Great. for sure so, <laughs> yeah yep uh to all you parents out there just you know godspeed keep chipping away you know build that bunker out <laughs> Um, <laughs> start canning goods learn how to can goods plant a garden mm-hmm. I don't know I'm not really sure I live in an apartment so I can't I shouldn't give advice I can't follow you know don't want to be a hypocrite <laughs> but alright any final thoughts on this before we take a break and then revisit it next week nope I'm good all right, we have been as ever the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at that same handle, all one word. Rate and review us. We always appreciate that. And of course, until next time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs>